0: This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail, or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank everybody for the emails. Questions and the comments have been great. Keep them coming, please. I wanted to mention before we get going that this will be my last podcast for Two weeks. Sorry about that, but I'll be traveling and I won't have access to any recording equipment. But I'll be back at the end of October. Now this week's podcast. I was reading in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a weird book. It just is. Anyone who says it isn't probably hasn't really read it. But anyone who's read it knows it's a weird book with a lot of weird things in it. We're not supposed to use adjectives like weird anymore in this politically correct time of ours, but let's face it, sometimes it's the only adjective that does the job. And when I read books that tell me about floods that cover the entire earth, about people being swallowed by fishes, about talking snakes, about hills of foreskins, about getting water from rocks, Or surviving inside a fiery furnace. When I read about the protagonists of a story succeeding only after they lie, after they deceive, well, I think the adjective weird is the right one. And the Old Testament's a weird book. That's not to say it's a useless book. I really enjoy the Old Testament. I mean, for starters, it's incredibly old. Covers histories that go back thousands of years, millions upon millions upon millions of people have read it, It contains a law, so it's sort of like a legal book in addition to a book of stories, fables. But you can't take the Old Testament literally, you just can't. And if you do, you end up saying things like, well, the earth is only 6,000 years old and there's going to be a literal gathering of tribes who are hiding somewhere, Or you dream up kooky doctrines about all the Africans descending from ham, all of which make no sense at all. Now, it's, of course, easy to toss the Old Testament as a literal document. I don't even think anyone inside our community has a problem with chucking most of the Old Testament on literal grounds. We still read it, but most people will say, well, it's not exactly... To be taken literally, and the, the language that we use inside our community is it hasn't been translated correctly. But what that really means is, well, we don't really believe these stories. Or we don't know which ones to believe, or, you know, there's a lot of extra in there. We say it hasn't been translated correctly, but if we were more honest, we would say things like, well, it's just myth and fable, and there's a lot of gobbledygook mixed in there. By the way, that's what most Christians believe about the Old Testament. And those who don't believe that that way, we call those people fundamentalists and or crazy. In our community, however, we're loath to go that far. We're loath to say something's not to be taken literally, because we are, after all, the great literalists. And in my mind, there's a big problem with taking things too literally. And the problem is this. When you take things too literally, you have You miss out on all the deeper, more interesting implications of any story, of any doctrine, of any book of scripture. You miss out on, on understanding the real value of it. So I don't know why we're afraid to say things ought not be taken literally. Because it's only when things aren't taken literally that you find truth, in my view. The other thing about literalism that's so dangerous is that, in fact, nothing is literal, even things that are literal. Because even things that are literal are being expressed in a language which in and of itself cannot be taken literally because language itself is mere representation, mere symbols, mere mere metaphor representing something else. Well, this gets weird. This starts to bend our minds. and People start to think... That you can't believe anything unless you can believe it literally. But my supposition to you is that one of the great problems with our church is literalism. And the great escape hatch for all the problems in the church is getting out of literalism. Moving up, beyond, ahead, forward, past this whole literalism problem. Because in life, as well as in religion, all sorts of things open up when you throw off the shackles of literalism. Now, there's always something sort of sad that happens when you get rid of literalism. There's sort of this grieving period when you realize some things perhaps didn't literally happen. There's some magic lost, isn't there? That's the cost of getting rid of literalism. But, of course, there's a benefit. There's an upside. The magic you lost is replaced by magic more powerful. Magic which is perhaps as much as a hundred times as powerful. Many more options, many more potentialities suddenly bloom to life. I listened to an interesting podcast this past week. Naked Mormonism sounds profane, I know. In it, the host postulates that Joseph Smith used, basically, the active ingredient in ayahuasca to produce spiritual experiences among him his followers, and in his own life, by the way. This is an interesting theory, and it addresses head-on how literal one should take the most founding story of Mormonism. The First Vision, the translation of the Book of Mormon. These are sacred cows indeed. I dare not venture towards them. But I will because I think it's important that even something as fundamental as the First Vision is a more powerful story when we look past literalism. Now, I'm not going to take a position one way or the other Because that's way too provocative and people get way too excited about it. But I will say this, the deeper meanings of the first vision, the deeper meanings of the translation of the Book of Mormon are found and understood when one looks past the literalism of the events themselves. The same way that the deeper meanings of Jonah and Noah, Meshach, Rashak, Radshach, and Abednego the hill of foreskins, any of these sort of things, the deeper meaning of these Old Testament stories are found beyond the literalism of the events being portrayed in the story. And being able to look beyond specific events, to look at the metaphorical, symbolic, the figurative meanings is a critical skill. And the deeper, more powerful truths of life lie there beyond literalism. The idea that somebody can pray, get an answer, produce scripture, have a vision even, even if it's in one's own mind, who knows, For whether it was in his mind or it really happened, nonetheless it was very powerful. And I like the idea of being able to have a powerful experience, myself, pile on the fact that he was grotesquely unworthy, as we would measure someone's worthiness by today's standards, a la Temple Recommend. In those terms, Joseph Smith, the money digger, the man of magic, future polygamist, this guy was grotesquely unworthy by our standards. The idea that someone like that can pray, get an answer, produce scriptures, have visions in his head or real or nonetheless, however you want to think about it, meaningful, that lesson is more powerful than the fact that he even ever even had a vision in my mind. Because that says to me that I can pray. I can get an answer. Maybe all the things going on inside my head aren't just a bunch of neurons firing and a, the product of a chemical brew that's happening up there in the old gray matter. But maybe there's something from beyond talking to me. I like that. I like that my kids can take that route and get some answers too. I like that you Mormon Awakenings listener can take that route and get some answers as well. And like Joseph Smith, you may have to spend the rest of your life trying to think through some of the mystical experiences that you're going to have. Maybe you have to interpret it, reinterpret it, reinterpret it again. I like that too. The idea that these things will stick with us and have layers of meaning. And that all is not so obvious when you get up from your knees. Because all of it raises the question of what is really real and what is really happening and what is really the point. And if you've been listening to this podcast more than a couple episodes, you know that I like to think about those things. We are, of course, as a community, terrified of taking the metaphorical route. In a recent general conference, one of our apostles got up and said, If you don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve, in a literal Garden of Eden, a literal fall then you can't appreciate the atonement. You'll never understand it. Those are strong words from a man in a position of authority. And most of us have a similar reaction when we hear these type of words, which is to say, well, I mm, I guess I'm not allowed to think the way that I think about things because this guy has authority. He must know more than I do. gosh, maybe my heretical thoughts about the Garden of Eden being metaphorical and Adam and Eve being archetypes, instead of real people running around in loincloths made of leaves. And when we start to think that way, our brains get a working to try to make sense of it all. We can't, of course, and so we come away resentful that this guy in authority is misusing his authority and browbeating us. This all happens subconsciously, of course, and then we subconsciously tell ourselves, well, we must not belong to the tribe, we must be outsiders, oh, blah, blah, oh, I'm leaving. All because some guy, some old man with a master's in religion from BYU and a Ph.D. from Yale in American Studies, neither of which make him an authority, pun intended, on ancient history, And again, I'm not trying to impugn the guy. I mean, I admire that he went on and got advanced degrees from BYU and Yale. I mean, these are admirable things. I admire his audacity, his boldness in getting up and making a statement so strongly about the Garden of Eden and a belief in a literal Adam and Eve. But I think he's totally wrong. I think you can't even make sense of Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and the Atonement and the Resurrection You can't even make sense of any of it on strictly literal grounds because that requires that all of a sudden there were two fully grown people living in a beautiful garden where snakes talked, that God's commandments are intentionally contradictory, that he wants you to break the commandments because that leads to, well, what? Never mind the fact that believing in these two beings just kind of appearing requires a you know, evolutionary jump of sorts because there's hundreds of thousands of human and humanoid history that predates this supposed literal Garden of Eden, although even that's hard to say because no one's really sure when the Garden of Eden was other than it was a long time ago. Even those who say the Earth is only 6,000 years old can't point to any sort of... Evidence of some sort of date. So you gotta believe that these two just sort of appeared, beamed down from the starship, if you will. Maybe that happened. I'm not saying it didn't. I'm open to it. The principle of Occam's razor leads me to believe that's not how things worked. Maybe the Garden of Eden was a great story, a great metaphor. Likewise, maybe there really wasn't a flood that covered the entire earth. Maybe a lot of these early stories, these early fables are just that, stories, fables, not useless, not meaningless, not ridiculous, helpful, meaningful, inspired, divinely inspired, but not to be taken literally, any more than Santa Claus should be taken literally, any more than one's high school diploma is really worth all that much. These are all symbols, markers metaphors, ways to help us organize our thinking, ways to help us remember lessons or milestones or ethics, we are afraid, of course, to teach any of this that way, particularly inside the LDS community. Because once you start teaching things that way, you start saying to the individual, making sense of all this at the end of the day is your job, not mine. It is your job, Mr. Church Member, Mr. High School Graduate, Mr. Reader of the Bible, or Mrs., or Miss. We do live in a world of gender equality, or supposed, anyway. So it's your job, Church Member, High School Graduate, person on Earth, human being. It's your job, at the end of the day, to figure all this stuff out. We don't like to do that inside the LDS community. As much as we pay lip service to it, because our leaders and our membership love the certainty that comes with hierarchy and authority. We love it. We're addicted to it. I've heard people say Mormonism is not a cult, but most of the Mormons sure wish it were. And what they're saying is, boy, do we love our authority, our lines of authority, our hierarchies. Because that comforts us and that relieves us of the burden of trying to figure things out, of coming to our own conclusions and living with them, even when some old man with a Ph.D. from Yale gets up and says, you got to believe in a literal Garden of Eden and a literal fall. And if you don't, then you can't make sense of the atonement. You'll never enjoy its blessings. Well, this freaks us out because the atonement is pretty important. We sure like to wash the the blood from our garments, we all are so stained by all of our horrible sins. And if we can't access the atonement, well, you know, you're screwed, basically, for the eternity. no becoming a God for you. So this is pretty strong language. And it's easier to say, you know, this guy's right. He's right. I'm just, you know what? I'm just going to do what he tells me to do. Mm, that's a relief. I'm comforted. And that's a nice short-term fix that makes you feel good, that gives you some warm fuzzies. But the next time something else comes up that confuses you, like polygamy, like City Creek Mall, like Mountain Meadows Massacre, like the policy against, against the children of gays, like the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Any of the hot topics that people get very excited about. Well, when you confront these sort of things because you have no experience thinking for yourself, standing on your own two feet, living with your own conclusions, when you turn and look to these very same people in authority, the hierarchy, and find their explanations wanting, again, it becomes harder and harder and harder To just defer, to just submit, and whereas that in earlier days comforted you, gave you a sense of security, as you become more mature, more thoughtful, more intelligent, you realize that relying on others and the associated sense of security was a false sense of security, a short-term fix, a kicking of the can down the road when you wake up one day and you realize you've been doing this, you're mad at someone. It's usually yourself, but you take it out on others. But the person you should be mad at, at that point in life, is the person who looks at you in the mirror. Presuming that anger is in fact the right response, which I don't think it is. Because this point in life is experienced not just by people inside our community. It's experienced by every person who's ever lived on earth, who's ever been taught anything about anything by anyone. Because there's a point in all of our lives where you have to break out of the shell. And the the act of breaking out of the shell makes you stronger. That act in, in and of itself is a good thing because it enables you, the next time you hear the apostle get up and demand that you believe something literally, that you simply do not, it allows you to say, oh, that's that guy's opinion. And being able to say, oh, that's that guy's opinion, is a lot more healthy, a lot more productive, a lot more comforting than feeling trapped, coerced, being forced, and all the associated resentment That just seems to percolate inside your belly when you give your authority to someone else. Now, many people are not willing to do this. They don't want to do this because at the end of the day, they want to be able to say, well, I did what that guy told me and he has authority, so I'm fine. They like this comfort. They love the hierarchy. They love giving their authority to the hierarchy. They like people with authority telling them what to do, and they like deferring. That's why I say Mormonism is not a cult, but boy, do Mormons wish it were. Now, I'm being unduly harsh because, let's face it, this is a stage of life that we all need to walk through. And even if you don't think you need to walk through it, you can at least have the charity to allow other peoples to walk through it, it being the period of life where you defer, where you grant authority to others, where you allow others to do your thinking for you. That's not such a terrible thing after all, and we do it all the time because we have so many brain cells, so many minutes and seconds and hours in the day, so much that we gotta get done, and sometimes we just gotta defer and delegate, and that's fine. The only time it's not fine is if something's said or done that upsets you. When that happens, it's nice to be able to rein your authority back in and decide for yourself and own your decisions and be willing to be judged on them. Huck Finn had to do this. That's right, we're talking about Huck Finn here at Mormon Awakenings. Huck Finn had to do this when he was floating down the river with Jim. All that he had been taught by good Christian society during his upbringing in the noble genteel South taught him that Jim the slave was inferior, was chattel, and that he had a duty based on divine inspiration and commandment to turn Jim in. And there's a point where Huck's floating down the river. He's thinking about all this, and he says, you know, I don't care if I go to hell. If that's where people go who think like me, well, maybe I I belong in hell. I don't even care. I like this guy Jim, the escaped slave, and I think I'm going to stay with him, watch over him, be a friend to him, no matter what the consequences. This is a great moment this is a great scene and in a metaphorical sense everyone needs to reserve the right to do this to say this sort of thing in their own lives that doesn't mean you walk around talking about how stupid people are and all oh, these dumb literalists oh these lemmings following authority these chumps you don't do that because people who do that are jerks but you reserve the right For those times when you're on the raft, floating down the river with your metaphorical gems. And you reserve the right to say, I don't care what I've been taught about this other person or this policy or this thing or this commandment. I don't care what anyone has said about it. I don't believe the things that they're saying. I reserve the right to make my own decision. Is that not the metaphorical purpose of the concept of authority to begin with? Because if you think about it, authority is just the right to do something. People in authority have no more authority than the authority you give them. They have the right to say, to do, to execute certain things. Only in as much as it's been given to them by others. If you retain it, then their authority is mute and does not extend past themselves. Because ultimately, each of us have authority for ourselves. And really, that's it. Unless other people give us authority for themselves in one way or another. Now people stuck in literalism and fundamentalism will say things like, Jack! The hierarchy's authority is not from you or from me. It's from the Lord. It has nothing to do with you giving your authority to them. They, w- w- The Lord gave them their authority. We point to stories in our scriptures in the Old Testament among them that try to illustrate this point, don't we? If you don't listen to the guy with authority from the Lord, the Lord will kill you. That's what happened to King Noah when Abinadi showed up. That's what happened to the children of Israel when they didn't listen to the prophets authorized by the Lord. That's what happened to the Jews in Jerusalem after they crucified Christ. And there are people walking around today who say, If you don't do everything you're told by those in authority, the east wind will fall upon you. You'll be cursed, damned, ultimately end up in hell, even though we don't really believe in that. And this is a very interesting question. I don't want to be glib. I don't want to mock. I don't want to give this concept short shrift. But I do want to look at some examples. What happens typically in communities when the leaders are telling the followers, the masses, what to do? And the masses say, that's dumb. I'm not going to do it. What typically happens? What typically happens is that the leaders react to the masses. That's usually what happens. Let's look at our own history of polygamy and blacks in the priesthood. As soon as an overwhelming number of people started thinking both were crazy and or forces from the outside started pressuring the church, suddenly we had authority to change those policies. And so it's more like the chicken and the egg, the great authority chicken and the egg. What comes first, the, the authority? Or the granting of authority or the, you know, is it the chicken or the egg? Who knows? The Buddhists deal with this differently. They say if you find someone along your path who says he's a Buddha, you ought to kill him. And what they're basically saying is don't give your authority to anybody else. You be the Buddha. Don't listen to someone who says, I'm Buddha, follow me. You be the Buddha. Of course, even Buddhists teach their novices principles, basics, teach them literal stories you got to start somewhere, after all. And so they teach these things, the basics, teach them black and white rules. But at some point, the novice has got to turn into the monk. And then the monk's got to turn into the Buddha. Because the goal is not to pay lip service, to, to, to express obeyance for the rest of your life to a bunch of stories and rules and paradigms. It's become enlightened. And I know we're not Buddhists. But Jesus taught a lot of the same things. Jesus taught people that it really doesn't matter all these customs, rules, traditions, all this stuff you've made up. What's important is what's in your heart. When his disciples would preface their questions to him with expressions like, Oh, good Lord, good master, he would interrupt them and say, Why do you call me good? This was Jesus, the most perfect being, according to our own doctrine, interrupting people when they would call him good. And then he would remind them, there's only one good being in the universe, and that's God. I'm just trying and learning and growing too. What's the inference from that sort of statement? The inference is, look, you got to own your own life. Stop looking to me to tell you everything and start being, for lack of a better expression, the Christian Buddha. Be the Buddha. In our terms, we'd say things like, be the being of light. Be the person of charity. Be the compassionate one. Be the honest one. Be the good person. Be. And stop deferring. Break out of your shell. Spread your wings. Decide for yourself that you don't care what anyone thinks. How anyone would react. Because you, like Huck Finn, have your own views on things. And if other people want to judge you for that, let them. Now that's a form of enlightenment, I think. That's a step towards God, in my view. Well, I've gone on far too long, per usual. I hope you found something interesting here. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail dot com. I'll be gone for the next two weeks. Enjoy your break from Mormon Awakenings. Until next time.